Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with veteran vibraphonist, composer, band leader, and an educator, Steve Hobbs. He's always busy with music, and his latest CD is 2018's Tribute to Bobby, in honor of his friend and mentor, Bobby Hutcherson. He's originally from Raleigh, North Carolina, and he started out on the drums at 7. Then, at 11, he went to the trumpet, and then from there he went to the vibes at 17 years old, and it stuck. He got degrees from the Berkeley College. College of Music in the University of Miami, and he went on to play with the best in jazz as a leader and sideman, with cats like Kenny Barron, Tom Harrell, Rufus Reed, Joe LaBarbera, Victor Lewis, and many others. He's a very interesting cat with many stories, so please get to know him and dig this interview, my friends. Steve, thank you for taking a minute out and reaching back out to me. I appreciate it. It's an honor to speak with you. Honor to speak with you. So let's go ahead and start off here. Your latest 2018 album, which is a tribute to Bobby. Talk to me just kind of how you feel about this album on a cellular level, the fact that it's a tribute, that it's complete. How do you feel about it? He was a very good friend of mine. I met him when I was only 18 years old at Berkeley School of Music, and uh, I idolized him. And I wasn't planning on, on doing this as a tribute to Bobby. I went up to Brooklyn to record this and uh, 10 originals and three covers. I had only planned on playing marimba on a couple of tracks, but while I was up there, just on the spur of the moment, uh, I ended up recording most of the album on marimba rather than vibes. And I don't know why I did this. I sent the, you know, sent the uh, recording, uh, well, the engineer sent it to the record company in the Netherlands, and they emailed me back and said they really liked it. It hadn't been mixed yet, but they heard it and really liked it. And they asked me what I want to name it, and I said, I don't know. And I said, well, you, you need to figure that out. A couple of weeks later, um, a very close friend of mine called to give me the bad news about Bobby Hutcherson passing away from lung complications. And uh, I was kind of in shock for about 24 hours, didn't really leave my house. I don't even think I called anybody. Um, I was just kind of stunned. And because Bobby and I had spent time together, both at gigs um, he used to hang out uh, at my girlfriend's house with my girlfriend's roommate, dated one of his best friends, and he would come over by the house in Boston and we'd hang out when I was going to Berkeley, and I stayed in touch with him over the years, so, you know, when we were playing together at various jazz festivals or just on the phone, and so I was very uh, saddened when I heard about his passing, and then it dawned on me, you know, a lot of Bobby's earlier recordings were mostly marimba. I had a couple of uh, pop-oriented tunes on there, which Bobby would, would often do. He'd put up one or two pop-flavored tunes on a jazz record. And also just my jazz composing in general is coming out of that Bobby Hutcherson, Cedar Walton kind of school of composing anyway. I mean, it, it's an original sounding, but if you had to compare my composing and writing to some artist, uh, it would be closest to Bobby. You know, I waited a few days to process Bobby's passing, and I was trying to figure out uh, a way to get to the memorial service, but it ended up I couldn't get a hold of his uh, widow, uh, Rosemary, and I couldn't find anything on the Internet about a public service. So I uh, stayed in Carolina. There was later a memorial service at a church in New York City, but it wasn't a funeral service. So I stuck around Raleigh and got the idea, hey, you know, maybe I should do this as a tribute to Bobby. So I, from Raleigh, I um, emailed uh, Anna Dejong, the uh, 
owner of uh, Challenge Records and said, look, you know, Bobby passed. He said, yeah, I know. And I said, uh, you know, I was sort of thinking of maybe, and before I could even finish the sentence, he said, what, maybe when you're making your record a tribute to Bobby, I think you should do it. And I said, yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. He said, you should because it's got mostly marimba on it. You have a Bobby influence. You were friends of his. And he said, why don't you just call it Steve Hobbs, Tribute to Bobby. And I said, sounds good with me. And that's how we got the title. It kind of made me go back to thinking, you know, when I was originally in the studio, how I just at the last minute switched to marimba and didn't know why. Well, you know, that switch kind of was a meaningful switch, and I'm glad I did it. What was so special about the relationship you had with Bobby? I mean, you obviously, I, I hear I hear stories about you know players that meet their heroes, and when do you cross over that line from kind of being fascinated by them as a musician into friendship, and then really absorbing a lot of these life lessons that I'm sure he imparted on you? It's important to know my background. I'm a white male from the southeastern United States, so. When I was in a line to watch him play at Paul's Mall in Boston, this tall, shy, skinny white kid from the South with a Southern accent, my friend kept saying, why don't you say something to him? Here he comes, here he comes. And he he was going in and out of the club a couple of times while we were waiting in line to get in. And finally, uh, we, we had beer on our, you know, I had a couple of beers. I was drinking out on the sidewalk waiting to get in that club, and I got my nerve up to say, hey, Bobby, and he came up to me, and he was this really hip California dude dressed really hip, you know, and probably 17 years older than me, 15, 17 years older. And I thought, God, he's coming to me. What am I going to say, you know, this corny kid from the southeast with a southern accent, you know, talking to this hip black jazz musician. We started talking. I said, hey, man, you know, you're, you're my favorite vibe player, marimba player. I have so many of your CDs been listening to you since early high school. And he said, thanks, man, thanks. And he said, uh, and at the end of the conversation, I said, yeah, I play vibes too. I'm up here in Boston studying vibes at Berkeley College of Music. And we became friends. And then um, later, uh, I would go to all his shows whenever he was coming through Massachusetts. And soon after that, uh, my girlfriend's roommate was dating a trumpet player named Alden, who was in charge of the jazz program at University of Mass. And he was, Alden was over there all the time, and Bobby was with, with Alden, so he used to come by the apartment, and I'd hang out with him, and he'd eat dinner with us. I was so in awe of him, you know, I was, it, it took me a while to loosen up around him for a while, but I finally got loosened up with him, and uh, I just, you know, he never sat down and formally taught me a lesson, but we'd talk a lot about life. You know, I just sat down spending hours learning how to play by copying what he was playing on records, you know, transcribing what he was playing on records. You know, as I went to University of Miami. I went on the road for two years after graduating from Berkeley and went to University of Miami and got a really good jazz teacher named Witt Seidner. And with what he was teaching me, plus what I had figured out by using my ear off some Bobby records, I was finally starting to figure out what he was doing. And... um I just kind of developed the style from, from his style. We would talk on occasion. One time I had a three-way conversation with him. Uh, Paul Jeffrey, the tenor sax player, was in my apartment in Raleigh. And he, he was in the Thelonious Monk group for years. He was close to Bobby. And one time we had a, um, a three-way conversation with Bobby on the phone. It was about two or three hours long. It was a lot of fun. 
just a great guy, soft-spoken, great player. And the thing about his playing was it had, um, I mean, he had chops and technique like so many players, but he had, he had this certain soulfulness and vulnerability in his playing that I just wasn't hearing with other mallet players. And that's, that's what attracted me to his playing. Beautiful. Well, speaking of playing, you start out on the drums at 7, the trumpet at 11, and then you switch to the vibes at 17. What was it that brought you to this instrument and made it a lifelong, a lifelong obsession for you? I really liked trumpet, but I got into drums because it was hard to get a gig in dance bands playing trumpet back in the day. It was it was before Cool and the Gang and, and uh, you know, uh, Earth, Wind and Fire had really taken off. And, I mean, there were horns in top 40 bands, but it was easier to get a gig playing drums, guitar, or bass. So I played drums. And I was taking... Uh, in order to, I played trumpet in school bands and drums outside of school and I was taking some drum lessons from a guy named Steve Clements in Raleigh and he had a nice muffler uh, vibraphone in his house and one day he let me play it and I mean I you know it was pretty easy for me because you know I played trumpet for many years and I, I was just salivating when I was playing his instrument I mean literally salivating on his instrument I was embarrassed about it but he said, yeah, I think you found your instrument, Steve. And it was kind of, that was the first time where I really thought, you know, I think this is going to be my major instrument. And when I went to Berkeley, I was studying a drum set in vibes, but I, I really didn't like the way I was phrasing on vibes because when I used to play along with pop records with trumpet, I thought that I phrased better. And I didn't know what the problem was. And then I realized... I don't have to breathe to play a vibraphone. And that's why I don't like my phrasing because I'm not really um, ending my phrases. I'm just playing these run-on phrases. So I got a melodica and started playing melodica in, in my ensembles at Berkeley instead of vibes for a while. Uh, and melodica is the keyboard that you blow into through a pipe. So when I would run out of air, I would leave spaces between phrases. I realized... I'm going to have to, you know, make me hum when I'm singing on the vibes. That will force me to phrase better. So that's what I started doing. So the, the melodica was kind of like my link instrument between trumpet and vibes. And I played that for about a year and a half. And then, you know, uh, I was using vibraphones at Berkeley, and I got my first vibraphone of my own my second year of college was the first time I owned a vibraphone. That's how I got started. I mean, uh, it came pretty quick, though, because I'd been playing trumpet for years, reading treble clef music as well as playing trumpet by ear. So it came came kind of quick. So you're a well-educated man. You, you, you know, your education has existed all in the classroom as much as it has in the real world. You got your bachelor's at Berkeley. You got your master's at the University of Miami. 52 credits towards your doctorate at the University of Northern Colorado. So my question is this. We, we, I think there's a general idea that I have of what the real world has probably taught you, not specifics, but overall, that's the best place to go. But when you talk about a university setting, what did you learn about music that has been so key and fundamental for your longevity? Well, i got to tell you, um, I think I could have learned as much about just being a vibraphone player and marimba player having um, just transcribed like I did and having a private teacher. But 
what what going to college helped me with was my um, composing and my arranging. I could have never gotten that on my own without going to college. And if all I wanted to do was really be a player, I'm not sure I would have gone to college, to be honest with you. Hmm. But college really helped me, you know, learning theory so that I could apply what I was playing on paper and I could write it out and arrange it for other players on record dates and stuff. So... You know, my writing has opened a lot of doors for me. You know, I had that record with Candid slash uh, Warner Brothers for so long, and I think the guy that got their attention with Candid Records in London was some of the compositions that I had written on that uh, Timeless record I did with uh, called Cultural Diversity. And, uh, you know, my composing is what kind of got his attention as well as my playing. So, you know, and Bobby was that way. Bobby composed and he, and he played, too. A lot of Bob players don't compose. They just play. And there's nothing wrong with that, but I'm just saying. And I'm, I'm actually thinking of finishing my doctorate in composition. Uh, and I want to I wanna, uh, study uh, string arranging uh, and, and film scoring. And I'm thinking about going back to the University of Miami to do it or maybe possibly uh, University of Colorado uh, at Boulder. So let me ask you this. How does a kid from North Carolina grow up to become a lifelong jazz musician with the clout that you've accumulated between seeing the world, playing on many large stages with a lot of very storied jazz individuals? How did that happen? What was it about your childhood and your early life that gave you this backbone to live this life you've lived? Well, that's a really good question. And, you know, I think there's a lot of myths that jazz, you know, started only in New Orleans, but that's really not true. Uh, Raleigh had a scene. Knoxville had a scene. St. Louis had a scene. Kansas City had a scene. Memphis had a scene. Charleston and Savannah both had uh, really strong jazz scenes around the early 1900s. And if you watch the Ken Burns series, they only touched on New Orleans. But that's really not the, the whole fact of the matter. And I appreciate what the Marcellus's did as far as adding their knowledge to that, but there was stuff going on here in Raleigh. And there was a section in Raleigh called Bloomsbury Park where a lot of uh, jazz musicians were playing in the 1920s. And I was fortunate. My father was a professional dancer. My mother were professional dancers. And uh, I was exposed to Latin ballroom dance music and top 40 music at a very young age because that's what they did for a living. And then my best friend who lived down the street's father was an excellent Dixieland jazz pianist who was working all over Raleigh and all over North Carolina with a group called the Salty Dogs, and I used to check them out all the time. And uh, there were some really good musicians in that band. As a matter of fact, Dave Moffitt was the drummer in that band, and he was Buddy Rich's favorite drummer, according to an interview with Johnny Carson on The Tonight Show. He mentioned this drummer in Raleigh, North Carolina. And there, there was just a really good scene here that I got exposed to really young. And when I started taking drum lessons with Chuck Cargo and Steve uh, Clements, I would go to their gigs and uh, watch these jazz people play. And a lot of the 40- and 50-year-old men who I was playing with were playing with those 40- and 50-year-old men who started jazz in Raleigh when they were little kids. And that's how I learned. And some of the guys, 
some of my peers who were learning from those old men were like Chip Crawford, who is now playing piano with Gregory Porter, um, uh, Jerry Peak, who plays bass with, uh, uh, you know, Steve Morse band. I mean, all kinds of really good musicians have come out of Raleigh um, and, uh, and North Carolina. Um, you know, I mean, I, Coltrane and Tal Corlo and all the older ones, but, you know, currently you got people like, you know, Nina Freeland, uh, Chip Crawford, me, this 34-year-old kid named Austin Johnson, who's just finished eight years with Jason Marcellus Quartet. That, you know, it's just, jazz has always been sort of popular here, and um, more popular than I think people are aware of. And now we have three schools in the area that are teaching jazz, you know, Duke University, uh, North Carolina Central University, University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. So it's a, it's a good scene here. There's other players from around here, Stephen Riley on Steeplechase Records. Uh, there's a guy named Elmer Gibson who came down here to Raleigh who uh, was on a, he got a grant from the federal government to teach jazz down here in the mid-70s, and he's been here ever since. And he, he kind of lit a fire, too, because up until the time he got here, a lot of the stuff was more basic jazz, but he, you know, he was bringing in the Herbie Hancock kind of concepts in Raleigh, so that really helped out a lot, too. One yeah, other thing is, you know, being in the South, being down here, there wasn't much else to do down here when I grew up here in the 50s and the 60s other than play ball or play music. Yeah. I mean, we didn't have a big city like New York City, so, I mean, there wasn't much else to do but music or 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 sports or to run in a gang, you know, yeah. and, and fight. So that yeah. was about, those were the three choices. Yeah, absolutely. So. Well, let me ask you this. This is kind of a question of, like, as a testament to growing up, not only just in the music world and the industry, but as a person. You left Berkeley at 22 and started touring with Janice. You guys were on the Red Fox show, American Bandstand. You obviously had a lot of fans and a lot of action going on. What kind of growth did you go through during that period? Wow, another good question. Here I was, this vibraphone player at age 22, uh, probably one of the few vibraphonists at that time making the living playing pop music. And even though we were on Fantasy Records, which is a jazz label, we were a pop group. I think we were the only pop group on that label. And, uh, you know, I remember, um, you know, before, you know, before my 23rd birthday, I had played in front of groups, uh, one group that was over 25,000 people. And, you know, uh, it was it was really good, but I was not near the player I became later. But yet, you know, because I was in this popular group, you know, people would try to touch me and get my autograph and all this stuff. And, of course, I didn't feel worthy because I had lot, several Bible phone players, friends of mine who could play circles around me who weren't getting to, the fame I was, but it was because I was in a pop group, you know, and pop, pop is a lot more visual than, um, jazz, but jazz was my love. So it was, it was kind of strange converting from playing in amphitheaters, you know, for 10 to 25,000 people in, in basketball arenas to playing in smaller jazz rooms. But I got used to it quick. I mean, it, jazz is what I wanted to do. So. It's interesting because usually it happens the other way around. Usually 
jazz musicians become popular and go into pop music, like you know Nat Cole or George Benson. For me, it was the opposite. I I, I started off as you know just by chance, and Janice's piano player quit, and I auditioned on vibraphone, and I was I was recommended by a drummer for the Tams for the audition, and I was high up on the audition list, and I got the piano player here in Raleigh to help me figure out some of these chords that were being played on piano, how I could shift them to vibraphone, and that's Chip Crawford, the guy who's playing with Greg Porter now. He helped me prepare for the audition, and I got the, she laughed at me when I came in there with a vibraphone, but... And she made me audition last. I think she was trying to discourage me, so I'd go back to Raleigh. The auditions were in Atlanta. I came in last, and she hired me after the third song in the audition. That was a good gig before pickups were, had been invented for the vibes, and it was a loud group, so I was playing with, you know, microphones, and it was the volume thing was an issue, but because vibes don't mic up quite as good as horns. But it was it was good, and I you know I traveled all over the United States. About six months into the gig, a jazz drummer from Raleigh got the gig because the drummer from Denver, who was in the band, quit, and he was a really good jazz drummer named Chuck Lennon, who had also uh, played with the Four Tops. But he recently passed away. But it was it was a good experience. So you have been a mentor to a lot of musicians like Austin Johnson, and I want to ask this: over the years, you played with Kenny Barron and. Tom Harrell and Alan Broadband, a lot of big shots. What did you learn from them, whether directly or by osmosis of being around them, that helped you be a teacher, helped you give back to them? That's another great question. And um, I learned from some of the big-name players, like you said, and there was another guy here in Raleigh named Jim Crawford who was a tenor sax player who... Uh, Stan Getz heard him and just flipped. And when he, when Jim told Stan that he was a, a dentist by profession, Stan didn't believe him. He thought he was kidding. And, uh, he said, no, nah, man, I'm, you know. And Jim was one of those guys that learned by the older guys who started jazz in Raleigh back in, you know, around the 30s and 40s. But he was a very patient band leader when I played for him. And I watched his way and I watched the way he would lead groups. When I first started sitting in with his groups, uh, there was a guy named Ray Codrington in the group who had been trumpet with the John F. Kennedy Quintet, which is a nationally known group in the 50s, and some, you know, heavy hitters in the group. The first time I sat in with those guys, I was so ashamed. It was all I could do to keep from crying when I got off the bandstand. And, uh, you know, Jim came up to me during the break. It was real nurturing to me. He said, kid, you know, you got it sound of your own. And uh, you just keep playing that instrument. You're sounding good. You're going to be good. You know, you're gonna, you'll be the guy from Raleigh to get signed one day and uh, by a record company. I, you know, I was about ready to quit playing that night, and he said that to me. And whether he meant it or not, it, it encouraged me, you know. So as a result of that, there's two schools of thought over helping young players. Uh, some of the older school guys are really tough. You know, like, get your ass off the stage. Go learn how to play over two fives. Work with a metronome. Don't come back. You know, I've seen band leaders do that. And then there's the other more nurturing approach, which is, is what I use. You know, if a kid is, is stinking on stage, he doesn't need you to tell him that. He, he knows it. You don't need to drag somebody through the dirt. To, to encourage him. The way you encourage him is by pulling them up. And it was done for me, 
And I've tried to do it with others, you know, and I've, there was a kid I hired on, on drums here in town named Will Terrell. And I kept telling people, this kid's going places, and they were like, you're crazy. And um, 18 months later, he was playing, he left my band, he was playing with Betty Carter. And Billy Pierce, who was one of my idols, tenor player at, at Berkeley, um, there were a few guys at Berkeley with Southern accents. And Bill was a faculty member. And there was me, there was Matt Gallahan, the trumpet player, Tim Horner, his brother John, and maybe two other guys there that had Southern accents. And we got a lot of crap for our accents. And, uh, you know, Billy was, was this great black tenor player who, who was, uh, it was before he got with Art Blake. He was teaching at, um, Berkeley along with his buddy James Williams. And we bonded. And he's, you know, he used to ask me, so what are you, what are you going to do when you get out of Berkeley, Steve? I said, I don't know. He said, well, he said, you know, what I do is I go back and forth to Knoxville and Memphis and try to spread the jazz message to my home, where my home roots are. And he said, you know, there's nothing better than to try to improve your hometown's understanding of jazz because we need that all over the country. And that's pretty noble. And, you know, for a guy like him to say that to me, it, it meant a lot to me, and it made me think. And, you know, I've toured a lot nationally, but I've also spent a lot of time trying to promote jazz in my hometown. You know, I'd say Jim Crawford and Bill Pierce probably had more to do with that than anybody. So let me ask you this. You've had so many adventures you've touched on throughout this interview around the country with so many players releasing albums, as a teacher, you've seen so much as an ambassador for jazz, not only for North Carolina, but for the world at large. How do you feel about your career? I know you're far from done, but at this point, with all the mileage that you've been through, how do you feel? How satisfying is your career up to this point? Uh, another good question. Uh, you know, sometimes <laughs> I can be very bitter, and sometimes I can be very happy. Um, you know, I chose to... to, to to try to spread the jazz flame in Raleigh. And I taught to underprivileged kids here in inner city schools for a long time. You know, although I'm pretty well known on an international basis, I probably could have been better known had I not spent all those years teaching. But it's very rewarding what I did in the inner city schools. So I had some not-so-good experiences teaching in, in suburban schools, but in the inner city schools, I was very well-liked. It was very rewarding. And then the national stuff, too, um, has been very rewarding. And I'm retired from teaching now, so I'm doing a lot more performing. And um, when people call me for gigs, I go. I don't, you know, I used to have to turn stuff down in order to, to be teaching. So I have a feeling, even though I've been on the national spotlight for 20 or 30 years, if, if my health holds out, I think you're going to see more of me than you've ever seen because I'm not spending time uh, teaching younger people anymore. I'm just strictly playing. I kind of paid my dues helping others, and I think I'm just going to, you know, wind up maybe if I can play another 10 or 15 years just, just being a full-time player. The one thing, the other part of the educational aspect of a musician has to be the live shows you've caught in your life. What have been some of the most memorable live jazz shows that you've witnessed that really inspired you? Uh, one jumps out right away, right away. When I was a teenager in Raleigh, there was this place in Underground Raleigh called, you know, it was Underground Raleigh and it had a series of live performance places, about five of them. One of them was called The Pier. 
and I was playing in some heavy metal bands, and my friends used to tease me about listening to jazz. They said it sounded like elevator music to them. And when I would try to get them to go with me to jazz concerts, they wouldn't go. So I would lie to them when there was a part. I remember one night there was this big party going on at somebody's house. Their parents were out of town, and everybody was going to be getting loud. And I lied to my friends and told them I had the flu. And I went to the pier by myself because I knew nobody would want to go with me. And I went to see the Mose Allison trio. And there was this acoustic bass player and Mose who was singing his bluesy style jazz and on piano and vocals. And there was just this killer jazz drummer who I'd never seen before, this black guy playing with brushes, really good. And he came up to me during the break. And he said, hey, kid, can I sit in? I said, yeah. I said, man, you're, you're killing it. Your playing is just knocking me out. He said, well, thanks, kid. Thanks, kid. You know, he said, uh, he said I'm kind of curious. Don't mean to be nosy, but uh, I was just kind of wondering why you're sitting here by yourself. And I said, well, you know, my friends tease me about listening to jazz and how it's elevator music and stuff. And he said, yeah, he said, you know, that's why I asked you. He said, I've noticed this all over America. A lot of times I'll see one or two kids sitting by themselves at our shows, and they have similar stories. He said, but I can tell you, there's a place in Boston, Massachusetts, called Berkeley College of Music, where kids like you don't have to hide who they are, and you can be yourself and learn the music that you want to learn. And... uh the, the drummer who told me that, who sat down with me, was Billy Cobham. Mm. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, back in those days, it was before all these jazz programs all over the place. It was before jazz was really, you know, in all these colleges. I mean, North Texas, North Texas, Miami, Berkeley were really about the only jazz schools around. Yeah, you can come out of your jazz closet if you go to Berkeley. And uh, it was pretty liberating. I went up there... And I could be who I was, you know, and I was around a lot of other kids like just like me. And, of course, over the years, it's, jazz has become a lot more accepted, and it's not a source of teasing. But even at Berkeley, I was more into the acoustic jazz than, than the more popular fusion jazz of that time. A lot of the kids at Berkeley were all into the electronic stuff. And, of course, I love Billy Cobham with Mahavishnu, but I loved him watching him play acoustic music. And I was, you know, always drawn to the more acoustic jazz. And I think being a jazz vibraphonist and jazz marimba player, it just lent itself to acoustic music a little bit better than some of the louder instruments, you know? Yeah, absolutely. So clearly being, painting that visual of you being there alone in the club and just your life that you spent in jazz, I want to ask you generically, why do you love jazz? Jazz represented... uh Right from the first, you know, first time I ever saw jazz was on the Woody Woodpecker show. They used to have a little jazz trio that they would go from cartoons and they would show the musicians that played on the show sometimes playing it. And I'd seen it on movies and I thought it, the thing I liked about it was it's the, the guys playing it seemed happy and the improvisation was a lot of times fast and exciting and, um, and I kind of liked the freedom of it. It didn't seem like they were chained down having to play, uh, you know, note for note. And I just, I liked that, you know, I liked the freedom of it. I came from a progressive Irish Catholic family in the South. My mother was from uh, Ireland, and we didn't believe in oppression. We believed in integration. And I always saw these integrated bands playing jazz, and I thought that was cool. 
it just seemed like more fun than the other. It just got my attention. I'm not really sure why, but it got my attention a lot more than, and a lot of the pop music uh, made me sad. You know, when they would talk about lost love and this and that, it would make me sad. And a lot of, and the jazz that I was attracted to didn't even have singing. It was just this happy bebop swinging stuff that just made me happy. So let me ask you this. I'm going to boil everything down to this. Everyone has a version of you. You know, perception is king, but there's also reality that can trump perception. And my question is this. Everyone has a version of you, your family, your friends, your fans, your business associates, but you're running your ship. When you wake up and face today, who do you think you are? I'm a guy that has uh, been through a lot of personal battles. What I do every day is I, I wake up, and I ask God to direct my thinking, and I try to help other people above playing jazz. And whenever I do that, everything else just seems to fall in place, especially playing jazz. I don't know if that answered your question or not. That, that 100% answers it, yeah. And sometimes the most distinct answers are the most powerful ones. And that right there, Steve, that wraps everything up that I wanted to ask you for now. Thank you for taking some time out. Thank you for giving the world your music. I'm a big fan, and I appreciate it. Uh, thank you so much. Thanks for listening and tuning in to yet another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players in New York, Kansas City, North Carolina, and spots all over the world, giving fans all that jazz. And thanks to Steve for his graciousness, his music, and his time. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino on the iTunes Store. Visit Neon Jazz at YouTube.com. And for everything Neon Jazz, go to the neonjazz.blogspot.com. Until next time, enjoy the jazz, my friends. Neon Jazz.